I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling our modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson, a little bit short on voice today, so please forgive me. I have an interview that I am so excited to share with you. It has been in the works for a really long time. My guests are Lars Boda and Alan Daly, two scientists and professors at the University of California, San Diego, who are leading one of the largest scientific efforts in the entire world to unravel the mystery of human milk. So there was the Human Genome Project, which you may have heard about, where scientists mapped the entire human genome. That happened over a decade ago. Uh, There's been the Human Microbiome Project, the American Gut Project, which have vastly increased our understanding of the trillions of microbes that live in our bodies. But we still know next to nothing about breastfeeding and about human milk. This pivotal substance that has sustained life in humans for, you know, the past 7 million years or so. So some of you may recognize Lars's name from my book, Unlatched, where I visited his research lab at UCSD. And he was the one who first described to me that human milk was not a food, but a human tissue, which he also expands on in today's episode. So at the time, Lars's focus was researching human milk oligosaccharides, which are these complex sugars found in mother's milk that scientists now think are playing a role in shaping the human microbiome. Although that's just the tip of the iceberg in the research that's now happening, as you're about to hear. And so joining Lars in today's episode uh, is Alan Daly, who comes to this effort to unravel human milk as a social scientist uh, from the education world. And that really underscores so much of what we're talking about today uh, and what I find fascinating because not only is there this groundbreaking effort to uncover the science behind the power of human milk, but it's joined along with this remarkable effort to educate the world about those findings. And so it was really fascinating to talk to Lars and Alan too about all the possible effects of their research on public policy and really, you know, the current giant controversy surrounding breastfeeding in the modern world. So a few quick notes before we jump in, just so you can keep track of who is talking. Lars has the German accent, Alan does not. Uh, There is also one part where Lars is putting human milk in an evolutionary context, and he makes a comment about breastfeeding being hundreds of millions of years old. So sorry, I didn't catch that to clarify when we were recording, but what he was referring to was that lactation and the mammary gland having evolved some 300 million years ago, even before mammals. So humans who have breasts and breastfeed, uh, you know, diverged from our last ape ancestor some 7 7 million years ago. So I just wanted to clarify that. And also for transparency, I do want to mention that the Family Larson Rosenquist Foundation, which provided the seed funding for the Center for Human Milk Research at UC San Diego, owns pump manufacturer Medela. And the foundation, though, operates as an, as an independent charitable organization. So thank you so much for listening today. Thank you so much for all your support. I would love to hear what you think of this episode over on Instagram. My account there is at Jennifer Grayson one. Enjoy this episode and I will be back next Monday with another one. I'm here today with renowned human milk researcher Lars Boda, who is director of the new UC San Diego Larson Rosenquist Foundation Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence, less wordily known as Mommy Corps, and Alan Daly, who is not only on the scientific advisory board of Mommy Corps, but is also professor of the Department of Education Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Lars and welcome. Lars and welcome. <laughs> Lars and Alan, welcome to the show. Welcome and Jennifer. So I want to start off... Let's just start off with the elephant in the room. How how did two men get involved in human milk research? That's a good question. And the I would post the question back and say, why not? Right? The the field of human milk research should not just be for women. I think human milk and breastfeeding is not just in the hands of women, it should be in the hands of society in general. So why not two men, I would say. Uh, but but the real story is uh, for me and Ellen can uh, can give you the story for himself uh, afterwards. 
I started, my background is in nutrition and started out uh, as an athlete and how do I increase my performance uh, with nutrition and then more and more got into biochemistry of nutrition and did an internship at a company where I was more going into infant nutrition and from infant nutrition you automatically come to human milk and breastfeeding. So that's really my path and I found it extremely fascinating uh, what human milk has to offer and what the implications are for babies, but also for later on in life. And that's really what, what got me into it. But Lars, what, tell me, uh, talk a little bit about your background, because I know some of the story, but you were you did not know a lot about breastfeeding growing up, right? Well, not because I was formula fed, uh, which I learned much, much later when I gave a talk in Germany in the hospital where I was born. And on the way to that talk, my mom said, oh, that's interesting. Now I know what you guys are doing. You know you were formula fed, right? So in the 70s, when I was born, that was just the, the norm. You were formula fed and there was no discussion around it. So you were, you were already well on the path of becoming a human milk researcher. You're giving yeah. talks about human milk and you did not know that you had not been breastfed. No, I didn't. Well, that's true. That's amazing. So Alan, were you breastfed? Yeah. In fact, uh, that, I bring legitimacy to the whole thing because I, <laughs> I was breastfed. <laughs> so yeah, that was... Um, in fact, it's really quite interesting because, so uh, Laura's born in the 70s, I was born in the 60s, although uh, miraculously we're exactly the same age uh, when all that happened. <laughs> one, one of us is not telling the truth, we're, we're sure about that. And uh, yeah, so in fact, uh, it was really interesting, your first question, Jennifer, because you said, uh, you know, why two men? Where I thought you easily could have said is, what is a social scientist doing in this this area around breastfeeding, right? Not beyond the gender, like, how is social science involved in all this? And I think this has been one of the most exciting elements of our work, which we could talk a, a little bit about later, is that you've got this interplay between the health sciences and the social sciences, really trying to look at the um, sort of the, the scientific elements of it, as well as the social contextual uh, elements of breastfeeding. And we think that's really interesting. So it's not just the gender element, it's also these sciences coming together. Yeah, well, and it's so important, because I know just from writing the book, I mean, there's this huge unexplored area of scientific research, but then there's also a lack of communi communication to the general public about uh, breastfeeding and, and the research going on. And so, I, I mean, I see how social science plays into it, but I, I'd love for you to talk more about that. So tell me, how did you meet Lars and how did you get involved in Mommy Corps? Yeah, so it's a great question. So actually, the way that we met was through uh, a postdoc that was working with Lars. Um, at, who's a really amazing human being and and came came to me in education studies she's working with Lars over in health sciences and came to me and said you know listen I'm passionate about breastfeeding I'm passionate about human milk and one of the things we recognize is exactly what you identified Jennifer which is we've got a lot of great science that's taking place but it isn't moving its way out into the larger world like what's going on here and so I think to mommy core's credit and to Lars's credit that we're the only center uh, that has really got the education component as part of our study here. So we really understand that it's also it's not just about the really good science, which is critical. That's a necessary but insufficient condition. We also need to have the communication strategies. How do we understand the uptake of scientific research? What are the supports and constraints in those spaces? How do we actually educate folks that are um, that are teaching the medical students? Uh, about breastfeeding? How do we help the community to understand that? And in the way that Lars and I conceptualize this, we really see this work around breastfeeding as really being a social justice and equity issue. So while often it's sort of framed up as a, as a, the science and the importance of the elements that are related to human milk, this is as much from our standpoint has to do with equity and social justice. Yeah. And well, and it's interesting too, because it, I feel like you can't even really talk about breastfeeding in those terms right now because it's such a heated topic. I mean, there's this whole, I, how do you guys feel about this whole culture of like, you can't, we can't talk about this and we can't educate people about this because you're shaming me. And there's like all this guilt around breastfeeding. I mean, have you guys encountered that? Like, how do you feel about that? Just right, coming that, from this area? I mean, Lars, you probably know more about human milk than anyone else I've ever met. So how does it feel to encounter this world um, of, you know, don't shame me and, and, don't guilt me knowing what you know. Right. I think that it's very emotional and rightfully so. It's, you know, you're feeding a baby, you're keeping a baby alive. And how do you do that? What are the long-term consequences? And, you know, it's my body. It's a, it's a male, female. 
discussion as well. So of course it's very emotional. And I think that's really where we need to bring it down to a level that, that takes those emotions out without negating them and without saying, oh, there shouldn't be any, any emotions. We should understand them. Um, and I think that's that's very dangerous. What we're doing is not saying that everyone has to breastfeed, and if you don't breastfeed, then you're doing something wrong. That's certainly not our intention. We're trying to, from the scientific part, on the on the biomedical research part, we're trying to understand what is really the power of human milk. What is in human milk that is not an infant formula? And there are many components that will never be an infant formula. So, so we're coming up with with a scientific rationale why human milk is so powerful, and then give you the info information and then everyone else can make their choices uh, whether they want to breastfeed or not. But we just want to empower women to say, look, you know, you're making a tissue there, a fluid that is extremely powerful, that sets your baby up for being healthier, not just as a baby, but also later on in life, but also makes you healthier. There is uh, good studies that show that moms that breastfeed have lower incidences of diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, uh, certain types of cancer, so, so there is really a truth to it that breastfeeding is is really powerful. All right, and I'm going to stop you right there, Lars, because you said something that I have been talking about so much since writing the book. So human milk is a tissue. Can you talk more about that? Because I feel like I wish I had asked you more of a follow-up question because mm -hmm. that's the thing I get. That's the thing that blows people's minds when I say that, that human mm -hmm. milk is a tissue. And, and people are like, what? What does that even mean? So right. can you explain that? Right. So, so if you think about uh, most people would say, oh, it's a fluid or a secretion. Uh, and that's true. But this fluid and secretion has not only molecules in there. It's really alive and it's personalized. So it's it has cells in there. It has epithelial cells from the mammary gland in there. It has immune cells that are uh, provided from the mom into the infant. There is potentially progenitor cells or stem cells in there. Lots of people talk about stem cells. They are found in human milk. And they seem to implant in the in the infant as well. So so we're not just talking about a liquid that contains some nutrients and that are fed to a baby to grow, but there are so many bioactive factors that are partially alive. So it's not just something that you can mimic in a powder and and you know call it a substitute for something. Uh, it's really a tissue. It's not just a fluid that feeds someone like the milk you would buy at the supermarket. And so, how much do we really know about human milk? I mean, is the goal of, of this research center to basically like unravel what's in human milk? Right. So that's really the mission, right? To unravel, we call the complexity of human milk. And I think we're really at the, at the very beginning. Will we ever be able to understand fully what is in human milk? That assumes that human milk is always the same, no matter what human milk you analyze. It changes over the course of lactation. It's very different between different moms. Uh, it changes when... Let's say mom is sick, mom is exposed to certain diseases, to, uh, to bacterial infection, milk changes accordingly to protect the infant. If the infant is sick, the milk changes potentially as well. So, so there, it's a very dynamic uh, uh, tissue that, that changes over time and uh, in response to certain conditions. So to really fully understand and to say, okay, this is human milk now, we have this done and we can check this off, we identified what is the complexity of human milk, I think that's probably not going to happen, but we hope to get closer and closer to that. And so and what's the goal? Alan, maybe you can talk more about like, what are you hoping to do with all this research? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, what's been really fantastic for me uh, from in my own science, my own development is that I didn't start out, I don't study uh, human milk. That's not my area of focus. I study organizations and the ways that evidence and research moves out into a larger world and the way in which people uptake or not that uh, evidence. So for me, when um, I had the opportunity to interact with Lars and to start learning, this it's been a really steep and fabulous learning curve for me in the space. Um, and so I want to circle back to a question you asked earlier, um, Jennifer, about the emotional element of this. Oh, yeah, we, we are going to talk a lot about that. Go for it. Yeah, good. So I'm also trained as a psychologist. So I think that that Lars's perspective is and and yours too from your work is right on the money. That the emotional element of this shouldn't be disregarded. It should be embraced. When people have emotional responses to things, that means there's a deep underlying passion. 
And often we see emotional responses to things as being resistance or whatever it might be. But we're trying to reframe that and really think about this as a passion that people have. So in reality, when you see this emotional response, it's really representing somebody's passion in a particular space. And because Lars and I both come from a learning orientation, right, we think the world is about learning and growth and development. We see our work as providing the opportunity to educate, to provide the information, to provide it in a manner like you're trying to do through your podcast right now so that people can access and, and understand it in, in ways that make sense to them, in ways that are intuitive to who they are as human beings. And I think this is one of the most central elements of our work is to, is to understand the the makeup of the milk and the makeup of this tissue, but to also understand that that sits inside of a larger socio-cultural context that's loaded with all manner of messages. Some have to do with economics and power and gender and all of these other influences that are at work. So it's not just the isolation of this tissue. This tissue resides, this living tissue resides in a larger context. All right. So just to talk about that, like in more concrete terms, because I totally agree with what you're saying. But so, you know, you're talking about how we can harness that passionate reaction and that emotional reaction. So like, how does that relate to say, you know, moms who feel like they are being pressured to breastfeed or people who actually look at formula and they and they've come to believe that these are two equivalents? And so why do they need this added pressure? Or, you know, the fact that women don't have, uh, we don't have maternity leave in this country. So like, how do we channel that passion? Because right now it seems like it's a lot of negative energy to me. So I'd love to hear how you're, like, how do we spin that into something positive? Is that what you're talking about? Am I, did I understand you correctly? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would say it is spin. I think part of this is, I mean, if you really want to talk about the larger discourse in this country around access to health care and uh, who gets to get treatment and who doesn't. This is, of course, a much larger conversation. But I think some of that intersects in some of the issues that we see around uh, people's perception about formula versus human milk uh, and these other spaces. And I think I wish I had an easy answer for you, Jennifer. I wish I could tell you and your audience like, oh, if only we turn the flux capacitor to the left a little bit more, everything would be fine. I don't know the answer to this really important question. What I do know is that we have limited science on this space to help guide us to really understand the complexities of this issue. And more than that, even in our own medical schools, we don't necessarily have the training that are happening to folks that are studying to be doctors to really have good, deep, rich understanding about human milk and its potential protective factors, both for the mother and for the infant. Okay, so you just touched on a lot of things I want to hit on. Okay, the first is uh, doctors. You're at one of the, you know, UC San Diego, one of the top medical schools in the country. What do doctors learn right now about human lactation? What don't they know? Yeah, th this is a great question. I'm going to have Lars follow up, and I'll just tell you the beginning bit. We're actually undertaking a study of that right now. So uh, I could tell you it's sort of some uh, interesting work we've been doing. We, as you've heard us say, we take a social cultural approach to our work. And recently we've been charting out the social networks of some doctors in some other countries, uh, trying to understand where they get information about uh, breastfeeding. And one of the big findings that we're, that is, uh, we're in the process of writing up from a particular country is that when doctors are asked who do they turn to for advice about breastfeeding or knowledge about breastfeeding or expertise around breastfeeding, uh, an overwhelming number of them say they're moms. Wait, really? So, so this is a very interesting finding, actually. And from somebody who studies social networks, which is what I do for my day job, um, this is not that unusual. It turns out that where people get a lot of their information in the world is it travels through social networks. And these people with whom we have strong ties uh, we often get a lot of information. Whether that information is accurate or not is another thing for us to wrestle with. But the point that we're finding from this study is that, that what that means in reality is that that means that these folks may be getting some pretty idiosyncratic understanding or knowledge about breastfeeding and human milk, right? And so we don't, we don't have rich, deep studies. Lars and I are co mentoring a doctoral student here at UC San Diego. We're actually going to be looking at the curriculum, not only here in UC San Diego, 
but across a number of medical schools across the country in order to answer that really important question. We just have so limited <coughs> knowledge in the space. Lars? Yeah, I, I fully agree uh, The knowledge is limited. And we can at this point just speculate that it's probably not enough right. knowledge. Uh, but I want to hit a little bit on what you say, the equivalent of, of, of human milk and, and formula. I think what we really have to understand there, and that brings it to, to communication as well, and where people get their information, that there's a huge imbalance really when it comes to pushing one side or the other. And that makes it again, brings it back to, you know, to have an informed dis, uh, um, decision making process for moms, whether they want to breastfeed or use formula. I think that information flow is highly imbalanced because there's a lot of resources that come from the formula industry. Uh, there's a huge product portfolio, of course, there's marketing people behind that, there's billions of dollars behind it. On the other hand, you have a product that is natural, that's breastfeeding, it's human milk. There is no marketing behind that. There is no multi-billion dollar business behind that. And there is where I see a huge imbalance in information flow that is needed for moms to make that informed uh, decision whether to breastfeed or not. And, you know, today, you know, since you asked the question, how well are, are physicians educated? If you call the hotline, if you have questions about breastfeeding, where do you end up very often? You end up in the formula companies' uh, uh, call centers. So um, there's a huge imbalance in, in where information is coming from, and I think that needs to change. Yeah, I, well, that's one of the things I talk about all the time is that you have these, like you said, multi, like some of the, the largest corporations in the entire world with the best advertising minds in the entire world marketing their product. And then on the other hand, you know, you have like public health agencies and, and activists trying to counter that message. And it's, it's just not possible. It's pure. I think it's purely like a fine. It was well, not purely, but it a huge part of it is this financial issue. And one of the, and the messaging too, like, how do you guys feel about the messaging? Cause I feel like it's, I feel like it's broken. I mean, all you hear is like, breast is best, the benefits of breastfeeding. But in fact, we're talking about what's the human norm, right? I mean, it, are there benefits to breastfeeding? Do you feel like we're looking at this thing backwards? Like, shouldn't it be flipped? Like we've detracted from the human norm? No, absolutely. I think you, you really hit the, uh, the nail on the head there. That is the norm. The norm is breastfeeding and it has been for the last 150 million years. And only the last 50 or 100 years, we came up with the idea, or oh, maybe we should uh, substitute that. And maybe there is actually a product and a market behind it. And now we're talking about billions of dollars market behind it. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, we should not be talking about is breast best. We should talk about what is formula really doing here to us. Um, <clears throat> but that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, unraveling the complexity of human milk is just that is to understand that human milk is more than just a powder that you can mix in water and you have an equivalent, because it's not. Right. And more and more research shows that, and we knew that from the beginning probably that it's not, but it's not just feeding someone with a liquid, uh, just like you would go to the supermarket and buy your, your milk uh, when you're an adult. It's not the same, it's not equivalent, and human milk is just so much more than just food for an infant to grow. It provides so many benefits, and again, not just for the infant. But also there you the go, benefits. See, Alars, it's hard to get away from, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But you know what's another important part of this from now from the sort of social science part of this? The other part that's going on, if you look at the larger uh, context in which these discussions are taking place, not just about uh, mother's milk beyond that, there's a direct attack on science. And what is science? What does it really mean? We're living in, in uh, I'm going to sort of exaggeration a little bit, like a, a new post-truth world, right? Uh, where everybody's truth is true. And so I think, you know, is if, if we always approach this issue from strictly this rational uh, viewpoint, which is like, oh, if we just got this, we just got the knowledge of people's hands, all will be well. I think it's that and we also have to be thinking about the way that we're communicating, the way that we connect with one another as human beings, the, the really getting much more in touch with our own humanness, I think is another element of this. So I think we can't ignore what's going on in terms of how people are viewing science. It's pluses and minuses. We've got all, 
all levels of different government questioning whether or not climate change is taking place. This is yet another thing where people are sort of shaking at the roots of science. And I think we have to acknowledge that that's going to also be at play. That's another complexity and another reality that enters the discourse that I think we have to be really mindful of. Have you guys encountered people questioning your research? Either now or even like at the beginning of... Well, I know, you, Alan, you came on later, but is this... Yeah, a... I... For me personally, because, right, I did come on later, I don't know if it's so much about questioning research, but I think it's this larger conversation around people are actively questioning what the science is and saying, well, maybe this isn't really true science. I don't mean particularly around human milk, and Lars can speak to whether or not that's debatable, but certainly the the formula companies are making these arguments, from what I can understand, that uh, that their product is as good as human milk, right? So do we really have science behind that? I, I don't know. Well, yeah, we do go ahead, Lars. We have science behind that's not the case. Yeah, right. so uh, I think that's a clear that's a clear statement. And, and if you talk to uh, to most of the people at the formula companies, uh, they will tell you that they would probably breastfeed their infants as well. I've encountered yeah. that multiple times when you talk to the people uh, over dinner, that uh, they would tell you that all their kids are all breastfed. So um, I find that quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I, I've been doing the slideshow where I talk about formula company advertising. And one of the things that's commonly on a can of formula is, uh, you know, clo as close as ever to breast milk or, you know, just like breast milk. There's something there's like a little asterisk there that says, like, this is pretty much as the best you can get to human milk. And people believe that. And they're yeah. allowed to that's labeling is allowed. So um, that but that kind of brings us back to I want to I really want to delve into what you guys are doing with this research center. So like, what, what needs to be uncovered about human milk? What don't we know about human milk? And what are some of like, who are some of the researchers that are working in this area now and that that are getting this grant money? Because mm -hmm. I think it's really exciting some of the things they're working on. Right. So let me explain the, the center maybe a little bit how it's structured and also how it's funded, because that really shows you that this is not just a grant that's for three or five years, that this is what we always call this not a sprint, it's a marathon. The center is to stay and it's funded to stay. And I think it's, it's one of the first attempts uh, to, at least on a small scale, counterbalance this, this uh, inequity when it comes to funding of either formula or, or human milk research. So, so our center is endowed in perpetuity uh, from the uh, Family Larsen Rosenquist Foundation in Switzerland. Um, and endowed means that every year we'll live off the payout. So uh, the payout will, the principal stays and the, the payout will really help us do the research, which means when we retire, and apparently I retire 10 years later since you're born in the 60s <laughs> and I'm in the 70s. Let's <laughs> How old are you guys? That's some, of his, that's some of his fake science stuff that he's talking about now. Right, but you so, said it, so it's true. It must, must be, be, right? Yeah. So, so when we retire, whenever that happens, uh, the center will be here still. And, and what we're trying to do right now, you were asking what scientists are currently working on that. I, we can't even tell you what scientists will be working on that in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, because one of the mechanisms of the center is to give out seed grants, we call it the mommy seeds, that will allow investigators to do some pilot studies in an area that they don't have funding for right now. They have a brilliant idea on something that is related to human milk, but really more in their area of expertise. And I can give you an example. It's not happening right now, but one of the examples I'm giving is we have brilliant people on campus here that work on asthma or allergy research. Uh, and they get their grants from the NIH and from other centers to specifically work on asthma and allergy, not really thinking about what human milk can potentially provide there. Well, we think that breastfed infants are at a lower risk to develop asthma and allergies. Well, why is that? What's the molecular mechanisms behind that? Is that really true? What, what uh, evidence and truth do we have to that? So how do we encourage those people to join our efforts to look at human milk in that context? So we give them seed grants uh, to, for a year to test out some of their initial hypotheses. And if it works, then they can take whatever preliminary data they generate and now go to the NIH and say, look, you know, we have first preliminary data that shows that breastfeeding protects you from developing asthma later on in life. So we're trying to encourage other people and bring them into the center, into the field, really, uh, of human milk research uh, to bring their world-class expertise in their area uh, of research to human milk research. 
And so we can't tell you who in five years might be working on this. And I find this uh, quite uh, interesting. So what and what's the response been like from people who normally wouldn't have even considered this field when you approach them and say, hey, come work on breastfeeding? Right. It's absolutely amazing. We did not expect this at all. Uh, we had our first call for applications in October uh, or in uh, in July in a close in October. And we thought, well, we only limited to UC San Diego for now. And we were thinking maybe getting 10 applications. We were able to fund four. We got 27 applications. And the beauty is it's not only from health sciences, from pediatrics. They came from all over. We had some applications from bioengineering, from the uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. From neuroscience. Wait, what so, was the sorry? What was the tie-in for oceanography? I, I want to hear more about that. Right. So, so that was uh, that was a group that looked specifically at uh, xenobiotics or compounds we find in nature that are somehow made. Either it's drugs or or uh, plastic. Uh, and the idea there was: uh, can we measure these compounds in human milk? Uh, do we actually contaminate not ourselves but also our next generation by handing off those uh, compounds through milk? Oh, that's, well, that's really fascinating. So, I mean, as of now, what do we know about about how polluted human milk is? Do we have any of that data? There's some data. Uh, that's an interesting discussion as well, especially when it comes to drugs and, and pharmaceuticals. Very often you read on the on the package slip, you know, when you use this medication, you know, don't breastfeed or consult with your physician, ideally. That's what it says, really. And that is another word for we don't know, because no one studies this, really. And there should be a push, I think, that when you bring new pharmaceuticals on the market, you should see whether this makes it into breast milk and whether that uh, affects the infant. Because saying consult with your physician really means we have no information. Right. And then those physicians are asking their moms. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're asking their moms. Yeah, that's no one knows. Very often the physician will tell you, well, you know, since we have the equivalent, just use formula. And there you go. Yeah. Right. You know, Jennifer, one of the interesting things we found is you're asking about the, as large as saying, we're really pleasantly surprised at the number of applications before we even sent before we even sent out the request we actually did a uh, a social network diagram of folks that were doing research uh, around human milk or at least in adjacent spaces and one of the things that we found is we found there were a number of people around campus that were doing this sort of thing each in their own little isolated way and we realized that there's actually a community of scholars that are at least working directly in the space or in adjacent spaces that if we could somehow bring them together, we could really uh, leverage the synergy of their work. And so we've really been actively not only seeking these seed grants, but really trying to think about this as how do we build a network and a community of scholars from a wide variety of disciplines and backgrounds to really come together and do this work. Lars and I have a deep commitment to this idea about interdisciplinary research, about us learning together, and about not being siloed in the academy, which is all too often the case. I can't tell you how much energy and effort we had to go through just to sort of bridge uh, the health sciences and the social sciences. And, and if you were on our campus, you could see there's literally a street that separates us. And um, we could see each other's buildings from our offices. And yet there's so much um, bureaucratic impediments for us really coming together and doing really strong work. And I think that we're not unique in this. I think if you look across academies and universities across the U.S., their researchers are often siloed. So we want to seed the ground to bring together a really strong community of research in this space so we can actually, we can learn together and learn from and with one another. So, so Alan, what are some of the things that you've done? Are you guys like having after work drink like beer meetups to talk about this like what are you doing to help bring people together yeah. only milk what are you asking about jennifer we only drink milk can we only drink milk here uh. <laughs> we're not delving into a whole another episode no but, but i will tell you let me give you a really practical example that i think both and both lars and i are completely over the moon about so um so we have this postdoc we were mentioning uh earlier who is working with lars uh, and, and still continues to work with Lars. Well, now we have, uh, we've been working with the center and now she actually has an appointment here in education studies at UCSD. So she still is doing work over in the health sciences. She's also appointed here in education and social sciences. And we're really literally bridging these two worlds with this individual scholar who has a foot in both places. And that's one really powerful example about how we're trying to bring these worlds together. 
uh, and really push on this work from a variety of different standpoints. I think it's been a learning experience uh, for the entire campus, really, if you want to see it that way. And, and I think the center is a great example on how to build this uh, multidisciplinary approach of to to uh, to science or to the university in general. I, I remember when we had the launching event, uh, yeah. several people would come up to Ellen saying, "Like Ellen, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like, what what do you have to do with this? Like this this should not be uh, education studies or social sciences. I thought this is biomedical research." And uh, I think people have learned over the last year, that's how long the center is in, in place now, that those things just need to go hand in hand yeah. to, uh, to, uh, to really move this, uh, the needle on this. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. It sounds like you guys are creating like the moonshot for milk. That's right. In fact. Yeah, in fact. Right? Maybe <laughs> right. that should be the title of this episode. Well, funny you would name, funny you would say that. Right. You so, tell so, ours about, right. Tell more about this. When we started with our seed grant uh, program, <laughs> we said, well, you know, we, we wanted to direct that in a certain way that we had preferences or research priority areas that uh, we can channel the, the uh, research a little bit. But we also wanted to keep it open to not close it for people that had great ideas and that may not fit in those research priority areas. So we came up with the idea, like, let's make it one category that we call the milk moonshot. So it's funny that you actually come back with the same yeah. uh, expression uh, as the title for the episode, potentially. Yeah. Oh, all right. So you have thought about it because that's what it seems like. And it, I can imagine the pace of the research must be it. It sounds like it's something that's just going to keep snowballing. Uh, and I'm interested to hear. Can you tell me about some of those applications that you got this past year? Like what specifically are they working on? Like what are what are just to give our audience an example of like the specific array of uh, research areas that are going on now? Maybe we can talk about the, the research priority areas without going into the individual applications. Uh, one research priority area was specifically on gut health and microbiome because uh, the UC San Diego has made a, a huge move uh, to be the leader in this field, not just for human milk, but in general, gut health and, and microbiome. Uh, hired Rob Knight uh, as one of the top um, microbiome experts in the world, who is also on our scientific advisory board for the center. So, so there was a there was the idea to leverage those resources that we have on campus that are related to gut health and the microbiome, and we got a lot of applications in that area. Uh, we had one research priority area that looked at neuroscience and cognitive development. Then we had one research area that was social determinants of uh, breastfeeding initiation and continuation. Sorry, explain that in um, layperson's terms. Right. So that's something that Alan can uh, probably talk to uh, yeah, so, this, so the social element was we were trying to understand some of what we've been unpacking already this morning, Jennifer. We we're trying to understand, you know, where do, where do mothers get their information around breast milk? How do we understand the social conditions in which doctors are doing their work? How do we understand the role of community agencies? What's the, you know, the political power economic structures that are at play that are influencing uh, people's decision making and understanding around human milk? So it was really trying to look at those broader sociocultural context factors that are at play that we really want to learn more about. And I could say, just building on what Lars said, in each of those areas, we had multiple applications in each of those areas. So it wasn't like we just had a few smattering here and there. Each one of these groups, actually, each one of these priority areas had a number of robust applications. And I think one of the most important things that Lars and I, and, and really Lars under his great direction, uh, with the centers, we're we're not letting you know we only had X amount of resources to fund uh, four of these grants out of these 27, but we feel so passionately about this. We're out beating the bushes looking for other resources and support to continue this work. Right, and Lars, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead and tell me about more of some of those uh, applications. Right. So, <clears throat> so the last category was the milk moonshot, uh, and uh, there we mentioned already the the. Uh, potential drags and plastics in, in human milk, that was one of the applications. And it really had this wide spectrum of, of, of different fields that would come together. Like I said, the bioengineering, there was, it was an application from there. Um, neuroscience, we as already said. Cognitive science, we get somebody from cognitive science right, too, I right, think. That's yeah. right. Uh, psychology uh, was yeah. also one or two applications. So, yep. so it really shows you that the entire campus now is fired up to, uh, yeah. to be involved in human milk research. And the next call for application will open already again in uh, July. We have our next uh, scientific advisory board in June. We'll set the next priority areas. And then uh, the next call for applications is July. Application uh, 
end date is October and the next applications will be funded in January 2019. So this is a continuous uh, effort. And, and like Ellen said, we're trying to fund more than just four applications um, and try to to uh, raise additional funds for that. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're also trying, I think, in this same space is that, you know, Lars and I, Lars's work is often, is funded by some foundation, uh, big foundations. My work is also funded by some big foundations. So not only are we trying to do the linkages within and across UCSD and other campuses, of course, but he and I are also working to connect the folks that are inside these foundations to understand the power of what it looks like when they come together. So we've been doing our matchmaking on our end for the folks that are actually working inside some of these big foundations to get them thinking around what does the next series of funding look like in this space? How do we imagine funding big projects that are actually connecting the health sciences and the social sciences. Because we really think that, that this represents the next generation of the work that has to happen. We've got to get out of our silos and start coming together. Right. Yeah, and it seems amazing. I mean, it seems just like you're, this is the most groundbreaking uh, initiative. And I can imagine, but as I'm hearing about all of this, I can't help but think like, are the formula company, I mean, the formula companies must be really interested in what you're doing. And so how, I mean, have they reached out to you about funding? I'm not even sure how that whole world works. So can you talk about that? Like, are you worried that your research is going to be taken for the benefit of the formula companies as opposed to helping more women breastfeed? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, there's certainly some, tr some, some truth to that. Uh, it's possible that we identify something in our research that a certain molecule in human milk does X, Y, Z and benefits an infant in this and this way. And then a formula company says, well, we just add that compound to our formula and make it better. That's certainly possible and, and that can happen. Are we worried about that? Not really, because eventually we will not be able to get rid of infant formula. I mean, that's an illusion. That's not going to happen. What we want is that the infant formula that women decide to take or, or give to the infants is as good as it gets. Yeah. So if there is a molecule that we identify is somehow beneficial from human milk, and if that can be added to infant formula, great. then great. Then those infants that get infant formula, for whatever reason, get that benefit as well. But with breast, you know, I just have to push back on that just to ask for a second, because, you know, breastfeeding rates are so low as, at, you know, just right now, and formula isn't even at that point yet. So do you worry that if we get to that point as a society, like, what does the future look like then? Does it become a choice? that like this is just as or as really truly as close as you can get i mean isn't that almost more incentive for women to formula feed it should always be a choice there's no doubt about it uh, we always want to give people the choice uh, we shouldn't mandate you have to do this or this there's medical medical conditions where you can't breastfeed of course of course so we certainly don't want to do that um let's put it that way we'll never get to the point where formula will be even close to human milk and that is for so many different reasons. And we alluded to that in the beginning already. It's a tissue. It's not just a, you know, lyophilized spray dried powder that you can then mix in water afterwards. That's just, that's just not the case. Like I said, there is a life components in there. There is personalized components in there, whether it's antibodies or, or immune cells or stem cells or even microbes that are in human milk that potentially are beneficial to the, to the infant. You cannot put that in infant formula. So that's the alive component. But then there's also the personalized component. A lot of the milk components that are made have a specific match that, that mom has to the infant. So how are you going to do that with your infant formula? Are you going to have infant formula for every mom now that has a specific composition? That's not going to happen. And that's not even taking account the benefits for the mom. So if mom breastfeeds, then there is benefits for mom on the maternal side. So how are you going to implement that with infant formula? That's not going to happen. Uh, and there's so many other different things. I mean, you can go even as far to say, you mentioned climate change earlier. Uh, there's studies out there that say that infant formula production contributes to climate change. And that's because you have to have all those cows to produce the ingredients. You have to have all the other ingredients. You have to have the manufacturing, the transportation, the packaging, all those things that apparently leave a huge footprint when it comes to climate change. Okay. So you cannot just think that that best milk and infant formula will at one point be the same, and then it's just a question of choice. That's just not going to happen. Right. And the other thing we don't know is we don't also don't know what are those social mechanisms that are at play. So 
where are uh, mothers-to-be getting their information? How are they making sense out of it? What are the pressures that they face? And we may have some hypotheses about what's going on, but we haven't actually studied that yet. And so understanding what that is, I think it's going to also help us on the sort of social mechanism, social pressure, social influence side that we've been talking about. So again, it's going to take both of these areas coming together and really playing together in the same sandbox for us to really dig deeply in this. But I think for both of us, what we care about doing is doing really good science that's going to make a fundamental difference mm -hmm. in people's lives. Right. And I and I was simplifying, you know, for the point of the question, because obviously there's so many components. I mean, just when you're talking about the fact that doctors are uneducated, like that's a huge factor in why so many women can't breastfeed. It isn't just a choice. A lot of women want to breastfeed, set out to, and then they, they can't get help from their pediatrician, you know, when they run into issues or the fact that we don't have paid leave or the fact that, you know, there are just so, so many unknowns about human milk that, like you said, if a mom runs into an issue, a doctor will say just, you know, you can switch to formula. It's not a big deal. So, yeah, I can imagine that's it, Alan, that's a huge, huge part of, of moving forward and what you guys are working on there. So um, what, how do you envision the future? I mean, like, how do you envision the future of breastfeeding in this country? Because I know this is... It's interesting. I wrote so I wrote Unlatched. Uh, it came out in 2016. At the time, I was really optimistic that people were starting to recognize that this was like an essential part of being human and that we were moving forward. And now there's been a lot of backlash all over again. Um, I don't know how much you guys follow the the headlines about breastfeeding and and uh, you know what's going on in this country with maternity leave, but it's it's getting really ugly out there. And so I'm just interested to see like how do you guys what do you what do you look at when you, what do you see when you look at the future of breastfeeding in this country and around the world? Well, <clears throat> I'm personally very hopeful that uh, breastfeeding rates will eventually go up. Uh, and it's not just because uh, we have this uh, isolated center here at UC San Diego. I think we're just a small piece in the bigger puzzle, maybe in the beginning, uh, a bigger piece. But there's really a, a bigger effort behind this on a global scale to build more of the centers that we have in different areas that, that will really push this and, and make this uh, the whole breastfeeding uh, initiative stronger and stronger and, and have a counterbalance to, to all the other forces that are at play and understand the, the, the aspect a little bit. I think we're at the very beginning, at the very bright beginning, and I'm very optimistic when it comes to the next 10, 20 years uh, on how this is all developing. Yeah. And the, the, I think that your thought for the title for this to be about the milk moonshot is perfect because this is how we see it, right? When, when uh, Kennedy announced that we were going to go to the moon in the early 60s, the reality was we had no idea how we were going to get there, mm -hmm. right? We had no idea. And so we're in that same place in our center. We have no idea uh, all the different moves and steps. We're clear about where we want to go. We know it's a marathon and not a sprint, and we're in this for the long haul. So I think it's not just Lars and I. I mean, we, we're, we're standing here representing a host of other folks that are on this campus and across the world that really see tomorrow as a brighter day. And you know what, Jennifer? There, if you look around the world, there's a lot of ugliness that goes well beyond mother's milk right now. And so I think this is really recapturing our sense of agency and empowerment and humanness to take back and create the kind of world that we want that goes far beyond the issues that we're talking about right now. I love that. Well said, both of you. So how can people help in what you're, how can people help your efforts? Can people donate milk? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there's multiple ways of, uh, of how people can help. So we have different different entities that are running in parallel to, to the research center. We have a uh, human milk bank that takes human milk donations and then uh, the human milk is then pooled and used for mostly for the neonatal intensive care unit where there's not enough human milk to feed to the preterm infants and the, the most vulnerable infants. So that's one way you can donate milk. Uh, you can donate milk to research you can donate milk to what uh, we have a new initiative here. It's called Mommy's Milk. Uh, it's a human milk research biorepository where you donate milk samples. Uh, the milk samples get aliquoted and then stored in different uh, uh, locations. We also ask certain questions about the mom, about the infant. And then later researchers can go in, pull some of those milk samples, pull some of the information that's around it and do research with it. Um, so, so that's multiple different ways where you can donate uh, milk. Um, 
you can certainly get involved by uh, being a um, an advocate that that raises awareness on human milk, and that's really what you're doing with your podcast, with your book. It's raising the awareness that that there is a, a, a discussion going on around whether to breastfeed or whether to use human milk. What is the benefit of human milk, and how does that really extend not just to health benefits but to social benefits and 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 equity as well? So so uh, that's I think what people can do. Uh, yeah, on I a think small it, scale. And in addition, you know, if we sort of think about this whole conversation as being like a milk movement, right? Like hashtag milk movement. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> that could be the subtext of the title. Right. I'll, uh, I'll use that in the social media post about this. <laughs> Great. Uh, I think the other thing is, as Lars and I said before, we are deeply committed to this idea about community, right? We know that it takes a village to uh, raise somebody to understand about the power of uh, human milk. And so for all of your listeners, you've already done great work in this space, Jennifer, and in with your book and your podcast and all of your uh, speaking and connecting to people. We can really create a really large network of folks that really want to do good work in this space. We're trying to create that here on our campus and beyond, but your, your podcast is going out to lots of folks. We want folks to be part of this larger community. As Lars said, we're one small center. We're gonna we're small, but we're mighty. Um, but we need other folks along the way, advocates and researchers and general public that can really help us move this forward. Um, and certainly, I don't think, and I'll, I'll say this as Lars is the director of center, so that he doesn't have to sound uh, horrible about this. But I would also say that we're, we'd welcome donations for people who want to help support the work that's underway. We had 27 applications, all were reviewed, all were fine applications. We only had limited resources to fund four of them. That leaves 23 other projects that were really exciting and powerful and could really help move the needle in this space in a variety of different ways. So we're also beating the bushes trying to figure out how do we fund and support and nurture the next generation of scholars that are going to do work in this place. That's wonderful. And you mentioned, uh, since we mentioned hashtags, are you on social media, Ellen? And are you Lars? I'm not, no. Yeah, I, ironically, I study Twitter, and I'm actually on Twitter, but I don't really tweet anything. So you can look at my research. Around, <laughs> so, uh, but we follow it really carefully. Yeah. Okay, so how can people get in touch with you then? Well, you can uh, go to our center website, which is milk.ucsd.edu. And uh, there you find contact information for, for the center staff. Wonderful. And Alan, how do people reach out to you? Yeah, same way. I'm listed as the, one of the scientific advisory board members, so you can just reach, reach us there. I think it's, it's really nice for the audience that our, uh, that our location is milk.ucst.edu. So that's just a beautiful, no manner of emails are going to be better than that. That's amazing. Lars and Alan, this has been so much fun. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.